This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Road to Deer Run, and the author, Elaine Marie Cooper. And Elaine joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Elaine. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Steve. How are you? I'm going to read what you have written concerning introducing your book to a friend in in just a, a brief way. You say this. A wounded British soldier in the American Revolution escapes from his continental captors. A chance encounter with a young colonial farm woman, a daughter of Massachusetts patriots, changes their destinies forever. So you're going to take us back, and this is a novel, but it's also based on your family. So tell us why you wrote the book. Well, I've always been interested in my family's history. Um, our family get-togethers would occasionally um, spark an interest in me when they mentioned that one of my ancestors was a British redcoat. I was a little bit disturbed as a young girl because I thought, oh, my goodness, I grew up in Massachusetts. I was very excited about being a patriot, and it was a little bit unsettling to find out that one of my ancestors was one of the enemy soldiers. And so throughout my life, I was always interested in this and always interested in the American Revolutionary Era. And um, as, I, uh, as I became an adult, I had, I had thought about writing a book uh, because of a, a painful experience that had happened in my life. Um, and uh, I actually ended up turning the painful experience of, um, of losing my daughter to a brain tumor at the age of 24, and I turned that into writing a novel that encompassed not just the story of my ancestors, but the story of uh, the grief and the pain of losing my own daughter because my ancestors went through a great deal of pain and grief during the Revolutionary War. So the names have been changed of the characters and also the places. Yes, yes. I've done that because not because I'm ashamed of my ancestors' names, but because I felt that by putting words in their mouth, as you would um, uh, necessarily do, in a fictional tale, that by doing so, I didn't want to be putting the words in my actual grandparents' mouths, because I don't know what the actual um, conversations were that they had and things like this. So in respect to their their memory, I chose to change their last names. I also changed the name of the town and the locales, because I wanted um, didn't want anyone to be offended by saying, well, that never happened in our town, because people are very protective of their town's histories. Now, this character, Daniel Lowe, is a British soldier. So in order to find out more about Daniel, which is what great-grandparent, how far back? He is my fourth great-grandfather, yes. Fourth great-grandfather. You went to England to find out more about him. Well, actually, I went to England via the Internet. Ah. Uh, And I, I contacted a researcher over there. And she was able to get records from the um, National Archives in England uh, that showed uh, my ancestor on the registry uh, for joining the 21st Regiment of Foot uh, back in the Revolutionary War. 
and he came over to um, the North American uh, land in uh, 1776 and was under General Burgoyne in the campaign um, across uh, New York and Vermont, that area there, where they were trying to separate the colonies, and, and um, he was part of that campaign. Must have been quite an experience for you as you wrote this novel and all these ideas came to you that you, yeah. you know, in the back of your mind or maybe right in the front of your mind, you were writing about this ancestor of yours. He became very real to you, I'm sure. He really did. I, I really, truly felt the passion of writing about someone that I knew, and uh, even though I never could possibly have known him, and yet I, I just felt the reality of his existence when I was filling in the blanks, let's say, of, of his character and, and um, the personal experiences that he went through and, and um, meeting up with my fourth great-grandmother, Mary, and, um, and how this played out. It, it really did become real to me. It was a real, um, real labor of love for me and a very um i felt like it was something that i really wanted to do for my mom because these were her ancestors well we want to talk about a few of the scenes in the book uh, you've mm -hmm. mentioned a couple in uh, in your questionnaire that you filled out about the book uh, it looks yeah. really interesting uh, uh daniel lowe he's a wounded british soldier and he's also now very ill and yeah. what happens to him he's he's in the woods Yes, he's in the woods. Um, he had escaped from the line of prisoners that were being taken down to a prison of war camp in Massachusetts. And this was after the defeat at Saratoga, New York. And all the prisoners were being uh, taken to the prisoner of war camp. And um, he is ill, and he feels like he cannot survive. And he decides to escape into the woods because he would rather just go into the woods and die uh, rather than be taken to a prison camp. So he's laying there thinking that he's going to die, and um, instead, the destiny would have it that um, a young farm woman discovers him, and um, she's a little terrified because she realizes who he is, and um, he uh, is a pro she approaches him. She's a she doesn't know if he's alive or not, and so she gently puts her hands on his chest to see if he's breathing. Well, of course, he's still very much alive, and he, his eyes fly open, and he grabs her arms, and then she's terrified, and, you know, neither, they're both terrified of each other. They don't know what to do. And, um, and then soon they realize that, you know, they're not trying to hurt each other, and then she's got to um, undertake the, um, the daunting task of trying to figure out what to do for this man. She's terrified, but she feels uh, that she needs to be a good Samaritan and help him. One of the things you say about your book is that forgiveness is so very important and that compassion mm -hmm. should take precedence over differences in ideologies. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, she has no affection whatsoever for the British soldiers. Uh, she has already had a, a tremendous loss in her life of her brother being killed in battle. And um, so she's trying to to come up with a way to um, help him and put aside her own prejudices. And how she does this is that she, is, she has a strong Christian faith and she believes that God would have her to help this man despite her difference in, in um, ideology with him. And um, so that is the core of what she needs to do. And she needs to overcome her own bitterness and, um, and be the, the woman that she needs to be. And also, and also the theme, clinging to faith in God can sustain you through life's most difficult moments. Yes, 
Yes, very much so. Um, everyone in life goes through so many trials. Um, I went through my own personal trial with the death of my own daughter. And um, the grief that I experienced, I, I, I really instilled a lot of those struggles into the characters in the book. Um, the, uh, Mary's mother, Widow Thompson, she is filled with grief of losing her son. And Mary was best friends with her brother who was killed, so she is greatly grieving over this. We come to find out that Daniel has had losses in the war, and he's grieving, and yet um, he, has, he has no faith. Um, Mary has a, a shaky faith, and the widow has a much stronger faith through experience that she's been through. And through, through the novel, you see the, um, the gradual growing of faith and realizing that, yes, you can cling to a faith in God, and, and he will help you through those very, very traumatic times that we all face at one time or another in our lives. Another scene you can describe a little, when uh, Daniel is sleeping in the barn, uh, Mary, who has rescued him, and her younger yes. sister Sarah are attacked, and this time, very ironic, they're attacked by a British deserter. Yes, yes. And British deserters were fairly common at this time, and uh, because they were having their own issues trying to get through this war as well, and, and this uh, man had deserted, and... Um, and uh, there are many tales that have occurred um, in the history books about um, British soldiers attacking colonial women. And so this was representing that kind of an incident. And um, it was just kind of out of the blue. Things were kind of moving along and progressing. And all of a sudden, it's just like in life, you know, things are just moving along and the, uh, the unexpected can happen. Sometimes a terrible unexpected thing can happen. And, um, and it's, it's a very tense scene where you know, they're just at the end of a day of planting. Daniel and um, the two black slaves that belong to um, to their great aunt who has come to help with the planting, they're sleeping in the barn, and uh, all of a sudden Daniel hears something, and then he sees little Sarah running out of the house saying, that man, that man, and Daniel realizes something terrible is happening. He runs into the house and is confronted with this terrifying sight of this British deserter trying to attack Mary. As you wrote those kinds of things, uh, and with the loss of your daughter, and mm -hmm. uh, what, what what kind of feelings were you going through? Um, I was I was it was funny. Sometimes it was a kind of an unconscious realization that that you've realized that you've you've sorted through some of these feelings along the way, and as you put the, as you express them into words then the reality takes hold of your own heart at the time. And you think, yeah, that's true. You know, these horrible things happen. These horrible things happened back years ago, and these horrible things can still happen today. And yet um, God is still real, and our, a faith in, in a loving, caring God can still be real. And you can heal, and um, that, you know, life does go on. We're going to talk about one more scene in another confrontation. Uh, Daniel is close to deadly battle with an American who has been harassing Mary. Yes, yes. Uh, this is a, um, a spurned suitor of Mary's who has long wanted her, um, and she has never given him any indication that she would be anything more to him than um, a friend. And um, so he shows up and finds out that uh, Daniel and Mary have this relationship and he is livid. He is just angry. And um, part of the, 
the scene entails the use of a hetchel, which is one of the little pieces of um, historic fact that that uh, took place during the Revolutionary War, is that a hetchel was a common tool that the colonials used when they had to process their flax, which they used to make into garments. So it made linen, and then they would make clothing from it. So Daniel is in the field with this horrible-looking tool called a hetchel, which has about 60 iron spikes on it. Very, very deadly-looking in- instrument. And Daniel um, now has a belief in God, and yet he's enraged about this man. And he would really just prefer to kill this man. He, that's really what his goal is, because this man is slandering Mary to his face. And um, so Daniel has to wrestle with, what is he going to do with this man? Is he going to kill him? You know, how is he going to deal with this? So that's, uh, that's his uh, dilemma at the moment. Many dilemmas in the story. Any, anyone else, any other characters that might be supportive of Daniel or his antagonist? Yes, there are. Um, there, there's actually the, the the mother, Widow Thompson. She at first is very opposed to helping Daniel, but she too is is drawn by her faith in God that she knows that she can't desert this person who is so desperately ill and in need of her help. Um, but then we have a, a few people who are very supportive of Daniel, including a neighbor. Uh, not everyone in the town is anti-British, um, and uh, there's a neighbor named Mr. Eaton, and he is. Um, he figures out who Daniel is, and yet he does not turn him in, and he becomes a friend to Daniel. And um, there's a little girl in the household named Sarah. She's Mary's younger sister, and she um, does not know anything about Daniel. She does not know what his background is. They cannot entrust that uh, particular piece of information to her because she could spill the beans to anyone as to who, is, who he is. But they become good friends. Um, he and this little six-year-old girl become good friends. And... Um, then there's a few other characters in the town along the way, um, various um, reactions to Daniel. When, when they find out that he's a British soldier, though, they are very suspicious, and uh, the, the events that lead to that um, are part of the exciting uh, part of the story. So I don't want to give it too much away. Sure. Uh, that's fine. We understand. Uh, so he stays behind in the colonies when the war is over. He did. My real great-great-great-great-great-grandfather did. He stayed behind. He became an American. And uh, he and Mary started a family and um, had eight children. And therein lies my family history. Well, that is a tremendous story, a real-life story. And, of course, uh, it's fun and also very challenging to create this fictional side of it, to make it believable. So what was the greatest challenge? The greatest challenge was getting my historical facts correct. Um, I wanted to be sure that if there was any historian of that era, that they wouldn't look at that and say, that couldn't have happened at that time. So I really wanted to have all my ducks in a row and make sure that things were accurate as far as clothing, foods, um, worship practices. You know, they didn't just go to church maybe perhaps on Sunday morning. They went all day. They would have a lunch break and then go back all afternoon and, and uh, just little details of how the ushers would keep everyone awake by attaching a squirrel tail to a pole and tickling the nose of someone who was going to sleep in the congregation and things like this that were just so foreign to us today. So getting those details accurate were, to me, a real challenge. And also the speech of the time was a little bit different. I didn't want it to be so different that it would be distracting, but just different enough so that the reader could say, oh, this is perhaps how they would speak in a different way from us, still English, but a little bit different than how we speak today. 
The Road to Deer Run, set during the American Revolution, and it's not just a love story, but a tale of forgiveness, faith, and patriotism. Elaine, tell us how to get your book. You can get my book through my website, which is uh, DeerRunBooks.com. You can also get uh, my book through the iUniverse website, and also through Amazon.com and through Barnes & Noble. Uh, website, Amazon, excuse me, barnesandnoble.com. Well, it's been a delight to have you with us on this segment of iUniverse Radio. Thanks, Elaine. Thank you. I've enjoyed it as well. That was Elaine Marie Cooper. She is the author of her fiction book, The Road to Deer Run. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Mom with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. What's your story? Are you living it? Well, you could be. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Her passion is helping others discover, create, and live their personal brands. Yep, you heard me. You have a brand. No different than Coke, Pepsi, or Nike. You are a walking, talking, living, breathing brand. You're not a logo. You're not a tagline. The choices you make become the path you take. This is your brand. Now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating? And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now, her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Progressivism, Our Road to Serfdom. Arise, America, rebuild your God-given capitalist foundations. And the author is Zester Hatfield, and Zester joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Zester joins us now on iUniverse Radio, uh, this segment brought to you by Trafford Publishing. Hello, Zester. Yes, Steve. Good to have you with Wonderful us. Wonderful to be here. Well, this is going to be a, a very spirited uh, discussion. We both have strong feelings. So before we get into the details, let me read 
what you have written in your introduction about your book, Progressivism, Our Road to Serfdom, you say it reveals the reason and the history behind our current failing economy with step-by-step understanding on how to rebuild our God-given capitalist foundations with greater success. It also takes a candid look at how new wealth is created by our current and advancing technologies. As Americans, we must take part in the distribution of this new wealth equitably and fairly without a progressive socialist government takeover. Well, that's quite a mouthful, but it says it all, and we're going to talk about these lies of progressivism and the truth about capitalism. Tell us, Zester, why you wrote the book. Well, Steve, it's a bit of a history behind that. I won't go into all of it. We wouldn't have time, but briefly stated, uh, I grew up on a farm in the Ozarks in South Missouri, and uh, as, a young, as a young boy, only 12 years old, I had my first milk cow, and from that day on, my father never had to give me any more allowance money. Uh, and I ended up, uh, before I got out of high school, with two milk cows and some beef cows. And uh, after I graduated, I bought my first car and paid cash for it. Uh, and I was only 17 years old. Uh, and uh, that's not a huge financial success, but it taught basic principles of finance and how uh, there's a great uh, reward for the efforts that one puts into the creation of something that produces wealth. And uh, when I then grew up, I went to the Navy and went through all that experience of the military service, and uh, that was during the Korean era. And then um, my wife and I uh, got married, and we then in 61 went to Mexico and served for 20 years as missionaries down there. While we were there, we were raising a bunch of kids uh, as sort of an orphanage. We had over 150 kids at one time. And many of these boys who grew up, boys and girls, were growing up under our care, and we were very concerned about what was going to happen to them. So we set up a, uh, a training center to where we could teach them trades. And believe it or not, the majority of those boys, when they grew up, they went out and they established businesses along the lines of the trade that they learned that they liked the best. And they're still building families down there in Mexico uh, based on that training. And the institution is still there and going on today, which is a real testimony to the value of that kind of Christian uh, training in in young people. Uh, Anyway, then we came out of there and got into financial services in 1974, uh, and then later again um, in uh, uh, 1882. And so uh, it was actually in 82 that we got into the more complex areas of finance, stocks, bonds, securities, and new acquisition capital for startup companies and so forth. Went through all that high finance uh, era of life and was very successful at it. It was during that time that we began to realize this equity situation within companies. I even had an opportunity to uh, be associated with the Kelso Association on the ESOP uh, creation. That's the equity stock option plan that is now employed in a lot of companies companies around the country. Only in a few companies, though, is it really done in what you would call a major way. But that's where they actually allow the employee to not only be paid a wage, but to also be paid a contribution that is paid in stock for the contribution that the employees have made at their various levels of entry into the company and the various levels of participation in the company on a pro rata basis. It's equally divided into stocks on a quarterly basis, 
and then they began to receive revenues from those stocks. And that was our personal experience in that. And then, of course, after that, we developed an accounting company, which we still have to this day, and where we're always, our specialty is small businesses. So we have a lot of uh, street smarts and experience in this area, and also a lot of education and a lot of high-end uh, financial, financial experience as well. So we know where we speak when we talk about solutions. But we also, by the grace of God, uh, were given 28 years ago in some fairly detailed research that we did into this history. Uh, we were given the, uh, the, com- the, the compound concept of what we call a capital compound theory of value, or just more simply, the personal capital compound. And see, the interesting thing about this capital compound is that everybody has one. All of our listeners have one. Everybody in the whole world has one. Anyone who is a human being created by God has one. They don't even have to believe in God, just like you don't have to believe in God to breathe. And you don't have to believe in God to have the sunshine on you or to have the rain come down on you, as Matthew 5 says. And so we, we live in a time when we're now being able to see the value of what he meant when he gave us that capital compound. For centuries, man didn't really know how powerful it was. But it wasn't until uh, the beginning of the discovery of electricity and other types of technologies that the Lord allowed to happen that we began to really see the, the power of the two elements in this capital compound. So I'm telling you, it's a compound. Well, obviously it has elements, right? And I'll just enumerate those elements, and then I'll turn it back to you. But those elements uh, are, one is physical effort, the second one is uh, creative initiative, which is an intangible. And the third one is spiritual inspiration, which is also an intangible. And it's those two intangibles that are the heart and core of all technological development. Whether that technology is as simple as putting a rock on the end of a stick or sending a space uh, shuttle out in space. It all comes from those two intangible elements. That's the mystery that we have allowed to become covered over with lies and half-truths of socialism that are trying to destroy the power and the personal integrity of that gift. You say in your book, Americans today are accused of having raped the world because we consume so much of the world's goods and services, our self-confidence is perhaps at an all-time low, and the American dream is said to be dead. Why has this happened to us, Zester? Well, because we believe a lie. Our, our early, early colonists of the 13 colonies, if they should come back from the dead this very day, and they looked around, they said, well, you guys got an awesome amount of toys and trinkets. And then when they found out what we were doing, as far as our basic understanding of economics, they'd say, you know what, I don't think I want this. I left the old country to get away from what you guys are doing. Because you only have all of the all the equity in this country is still back now into the hands of a few people, and all the people like I am, like I used to be when I left the old country, they don't have anything except their job. And even that now is in question because all of these dreams about so-called 401ks and retirements and IRAs and all of that, most of that has been destroyed because of the kind of social uh, progressive socialism that is destroying even that uh, vestige of what they were trying to do for their future. So the early colonists would not find what we're doing attractive at all. I'm sure they would be enamored and, and uh, impressed by our toys and our, and our tools, but they would, have looked, they would look much deeper into the situation, and uh, they would have some very critical comments to make about it, I'm sure. And these progressive socialists, of course, have been around with us for a long time. It isn't just something that has happened with the recent administration. That's true. 
truth, that's true. It actually started uh, as early as about 1860, uh, right after the um, uh, publication uh, of the Communist Manifesto, which Marx and Engels uh, first put out in uh, 1854. It didn't really catch on real well until about 1875. Uh, and it was never given any true application within any kind of uh, government or administrative uh, public service use until Stalin, excuse me, until um, Lenin uh, got a hold of it and used it in the uh, uh, as a as a means to control the uh, so the Soviet Revolution under the Bolsheviks, and that's what started the application of what we know as communism in the country of the Soviet uh, Republic. Uh, now we have uh, the all the principles of the same thing minus the soldiers with guns standing in front of the stores. And it's not to say that someday we wouldn't have those, but right now it's all being done uh, through systematic brainwashing, systematic um, uh, systems controls, party controls, administrative controls, etc. And uh, unfortunately, the, the, the results are the same. It ends up, everybody ends up a serf or, or a servant at best, a slave, in other words, to the state. The only, at the end of the road, all you have at the end of any of these kind of experiments, you, you end up with all capital in the hands of one entity, which is the government. Why, that's the worst of all uh, concentrations of power. Why do we as Americans buy into the lie that government can take care of us? What, what is it that, uh, because history proves otherwise, but we seem to, with so many people now with, uh, on the government dole, what, what is it? It's a combination of things. Uh, it's basically uh, laziness on the one part, uh, avoiding of a, of a personal responsibility. We have a carnal sin nature within man that, uh, although he's been assigned a certain accountability, a certain things to be accountable for, and certain personal responsibilities, uh, he tends to reject them. Even in marriage, we see husbands rejecting the role of the leader of the family. We see mothers abandoning their children. We see businesses folding because executives uh, blow out at the top. They commit suicide. They rob the country, a company. They, they do all kinds of things, trying to avoid uh, responsibility. And since this sin nature is um, nat natural within us, when we're given the option of taking something for nothing or thinking we're getting something for nothing, we're very tempted to do that. And we've uh, succumbed to an awful lot of that. And that's a moral issue. At the end of the day, it's a moral issue. And we really uh, need to look at our roots, our spiritual roots and our moral roots. And I think when we do that, we're going to find uh, very surprisingly, maybe for some, not so surprisingly for others, that a lot of this uh, started as a deterioration of leadership in our churches. Well, that's a, a bold statement, but it sounds true to me. And, and of course, th that's all a lie, as we were saying. When, and when p people start to look to someone else for their well-being, that is the big lie. And, of course, it's easily... It's easy for government then to wield its power. How are we going to get out of this, Zester? You've got some strong feelings about technology and how that can change everything. How are we going to get out of this terrible cycle we're in and break out of it and, and get back our country? Well, we have two choices. We can do nothing and just let technology move ahead under its normal uh, process of uh, evolution and growing stronger and more complete in its ability to replace human effort, 
uh, because now we've gone far beyond the use of technology as just replacing muscles. We're now using technology to replace the brain, and uh, this is taking over the role of the intangible elements of the capital compound. And the people who are, who are contributing to that development are not being compensated uh, in anything like a true uh, just a justified perspective of equitably re- receiving what they have been contributing to the creation of that wealth. So, therefore, if you don't do anything long-term, technology is going to become so sophisticated that people will become uh, almost un- unnecessary. And then you have the problem of, well, who buys it? Who, who, can, who can afford it? Who can actually participate in it? Do we end up with just a few people with wealth and everybody else is a serf? Well, Sad to say, I don't know how severe the system would, would become, but it's certainly going to be something we don't want. And that would in, indeed enforce, no doubt, a lot of uh, violent response to human beings, because human beings have a very strong desire for self-preservation. And uh, that's even stronger than their, their, their laziness and their, uh, avarice, you know, their aversion uh, to responsibility. So in push comes to shove, they will fight back when the time comes. But... The second option is to intelligently look at what we can do to set up systems and improve on the systems we already have. We already have the ESOP. We also have the Real Estate Investment Trust, and there are a few other instruments of finance that we can implement that can equitably distribute the equity created in all uh, wealth-generating entities around the world and begin to understand how to divide this equitably and honestly among those who have created it. It's a moral issue at its very core. Well, we have about a minute left, Zester. Uh, do you have hope for the future? I do. I really do, because I don't believe that the intent of our uh, Creator is to allow His kingdom here on earth to be uh, destroyed by these kind of things. And He's creating the creativity. He's giving us the creativity. He's given us the vision. And I believe He's going to give us the courage to move forward and to uh, put a spirit of, of repentance and acceptance in a majority of the, of the population of the world uh, over time. It's not going to happen overnight, but in a matter of a few years, we're going to see a much greater turn away from the, the lies that we've been accepting and a return to the fundamentals of integrity and honesty in business that's going to include the equitable distribution of the equity being created by the various individuals involved in those different entities. We certainly have the brain power. It sounds like now we just got to get back to the power of the heart. And like you said, morality and truth and belief in God. And, and uh, there are absolutes in the world that we must follow. Well, Zester, we appreciate you being with us. Tell us how to get your book. Well, everyone should be uh, excited about this and go to uh, ProgressiveSocialism.com. Uh, just think of P.S. Progressive Socialism. Dot com, and you can get the book there. You can go to other normal book outlets. You can even go into Barnes & Nobles and ask for it. They would have to order it, but they've got it on their record to order. And then beginning the first week in August, it'll be uh, in all their catalogs uh, around the nation and even in Canada. So there'll be a big push beginning the first week in August for the retail outlets. But right now, you can go to Amazon.com or uh, books, Barnes & Noble's website and also... Um, our own website of uh, ProgressiveSocialism.com. Zester, we appreciate you being with us on this iUniverse radio segment brought to everyone by Trafford Publishing. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Zester Hatfield, the author of his book, 
progressivism, our road to serfdom. Arise America, rebuild your God-given capitalist foundations. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Dix of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com and then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Sparky, the world's most lovable and mischievous bear cub. And the author is Wendy Shymansky. And Wendy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Wendy. Hello, Steve. How are you today? Well, I'm just great, and Sparky sounds like a great, fun book, and it may be fiction, but it's based on facts. You, you've been a guide in a most remarkable place, and I'm going to try to say the name right, Kutsamatin Grizzly Bear Sanctuary up in Canada. Now, where in Canada? Uh, the the Kutsamatin, I have, have a very, had a very gifted life, I must say, Steve. It's been a wonderful experience to work with the bears. The Kutsamatin uh, Grizzly Bear Sanctuary slash Provincial Park is located in northwestern British Columbia, um, near Prince Rupert, about, uh, it's about an eight-hour trip by sailboat into the Kutsamatin Grizzly Bear Reserve. So it's quite a remarkable, pristine area. And the interesting thing about the Kutsamatin is that it is uh, a bear sanctuary, so it's a place for bears. But what my job was at the time um, that I was working up there was I was taking folks in by sailboat with another guide, 
and limited number of people get into the Kutsmatin. So an average of about uh, 200 people a year would go into the the inlet and view the bears in their natural state. So how many years did you do this? Uh, Ten years up in the Kutsmatin, and then I also guided for another company for five years. So my experience with the bears actually viewing and recording their antics was over a 15-year period. Now, there is a Sparky, right? There definitely is. Sparky is alive and well, still up in the Kutsmatin, and Sparky is now a very large bear. When I first met Sparky, uh, that was the first year that I was in the Kutsmatin. So it's been 15 years since Sparky was a baby, and uh, Sparky was a bouncy 10-pound little cub, and that's this, they're called Cubs of the Year, the first year, uh, grizzly bears. When they first come out of the den with their mom, the cubs of the year are about 10 pounds, and they grow over the summer to approximately, I'd say, about 100 to 150 pounds at the very most. Um, then, now, Sparky, after 15 years, is about 1,200 pounds. Oh, my so goodness. He, yeah, very large bear, dominant male on the Kutsmatin. Now, the picture on the front cover, you took that picture of Sparky. I did. Yeah, that's the very, actually, that's the very first day that I met Sparky. And there's a story in the book about where Sparky first sees humans and his antics climbing up on a log. And that's, that picture is based on the, the chapter in the book about Sparky meets the humans. So you have the privilege of recording uh, their daily uh, behavior from the water right next to where they were living? Yes, we never had any physical interaction with the bears. It was all visual. Um, we watched what the bears did. We worked off sailboat, zodiacs, and kayaks. And just watching their interaction and not having... They got used to us. You know, they got used to us being there. We became part of their environment. And there, like I say, there was no physical contact. So the bears just did their bear things and ignored us basically except you know once in a while they take an interest uh, eating grass and fishing for bears gets pretty boring so they like to have a look at the humans once in a while but we were able to watch them and just the the grizzly bear society is fascinating now sparky has a lot of friends and you talk about his friends and in fact they uh, i don't know if they're talking to each other but they're communicating yeah, that's why the book is fiction, right? Um, the the book is fa is facts, fiction based on facts. So everything that uh, that is in the book that I've written about, I actually saw the bears doing, and I tried to keep neutral and put the bears' antics into words. And in the book, the bit, the animals do talk to one another. I mean, obviously, we don't hear a language that animals have. They possibly may talk to each other. Who knows? We don't know. And some of the things that I saw them do, I actually questioned. How did the baby bear cub know that its mom wanted him to come right by her side when the bear cub was 100 yards down the, down the beach? You know, there's, there's things that the bears did that I can't explain. But anyways, um, in the book, I, I tried to put the bear's antics into words. And he's got uh, two squirrel f brothers, uh, nutty squirrel brothers, as you call them. Do they really just kind of hang out with him? 
Um, yeah, actually, it's it, when you're watching the animals, it's quite fascinating because we always think, okay, bears stick with bears and squirrels stick with squirrels, wolves stick with wolves, and but actually, particularly on the coast here, because there's so much food, there's the salmon are the, their main mainstay in survival, and all the animals, particularly in the fall, congregate on the beaches, and they'll they'll interact and they'll, I mean, not not talk to each other like they do in the book, but they'll they'll be within a few feet of each other and just ignore each other because everybody's eating and and you know having having a good feed on on salmon and getting ready for winter. Um, throughout the the summer months and the spring and summer, you'll see the animals also fairly near each other and they don't really take any much notice unless they start to play and I actually have seen uh, bears playing with wolves you know and and so they do they do have an interaction that us humans don't get to to see on a very regular basis because most of us don't do not have um, good contact with the forest anymore we've lost that connection with nature now, what about this gangly, goofy moose, as you call him? Does he have a name? No, no, what? Morse, Morse the Moose. Morse the, the Moose. <laughs> Morse the Moose. Huh. Um, he's in the book. We do have moose wander into the Kutsumatin once in a while. It's Moose are more of a marshy, swampy-type creature. They like, you know, lakes and um, marshes because that's where they feed, Right. But every now and then you'll get a moose wander up a wrong valley and end up in the Kutsmatin or one of the side inlets that leads out to the ocean. And we did have actually a moose wander into the forest and the, the interaction of the bear cubs when they see something like that. It's not an animal that they see on a regular basis. Deer, a little bit different. You know, deer are there on a regular basis. So, uh, yeah, that, that part of the story was kind of fun to write. And, of course, you have to have a shifty weasel in the group. Must be an attorney. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. Please forgive me, everybody out there. (laughs) Westy the weasel. You know, weasels, they always kind of try and weasel in on everybody else's salmon and get into everybody's business, and that's how Westy came to be. He, He had his own little personality and, you know, trying to interfere with, uh, Sparky and his mother Lucy um, trying to interfere with Lucy teaching Sparky the antics or the um, the ways of life and 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 Westy trying to you know push his antics on the bear cub and of course in the real world of grizzlies there there are those who uh, are not so easy to get along with like uh, some gigantic disfigured dominant male bear as you call him. <laughs> um, the dominant males are the ones, there's usually in any given area, there's uh, usually two or three dominant males. The males that reach the pinnacle, they're the ones that get big and muscly and weigh anywhere from 1,000 to 1,400 pounds. That's a 1,400 pound bear is huge. Usually the coastal bears here get to about 1,200 pounds at the most. Um, you'll find on Kodiak Island, you'll get 1,400-pound males. But the large dominant males are the ones that fight each other for the um, 
privilege of breeding the females. So oftentimes the 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 bears will you know they'll get into massive fights and and body parts will go missing. And we had one uh, bear in the Kusimatine who was missing his left ear, and that's Lefty in the story is is the actual bear. Also his lip part of his lip was torn off and he was quite a big mess. Um, the other bear that was it that I talk about in the book is Buffalo and it's kind of a funny name for a uh, grizzly bear but he looked so big and massive he looked like a buffalo. He had this big hump on his back and he was beautiful. He was a very handsome bear. If I was a female bear he would be my pick. But um, he was massive, um, large head, and he looked like a buffalo, and that's where he got his name from. Now, there's also a cougar that is kind of obnoxious. (laughs) Cougars are definitely, they are carnivores. They will eat anything at any time, and they are... um, they're shifty. They'll they'll stalk up behind you. I'm much more afraid of cougars than I am of bears. Bears, I'm you know have a pretty good understanding of grizzly bears and black bears and polar bears, but you stay out of their way, right? And they will, probably won't take an interest in you, except for polar bears. Polar bears are a little, they're often another category, but cougars, however, um, they'll stalk you. They'll come up behind you. They'll jump out of a tree on you, and that's what I kind of tried to. Uh, get across in the book is their action of how they suddenly just plop out of nowhere and they're there and if they do that it's usually because they are interested in eating something you know so they're a creature that is like I say a definite carnivore they'll they'll feed on they're meat eaters they'll feed on anything that they can they're opportunists you also have a theme in the book uh, about the responsibility we have as humans to take care of, as you put it, our fragile planet and all species who dwell here. Um, that's something that's very, very close to home with me. I realize that um, we have one planet. We are extremely lucky. It's like a little jewel in the universe. We have everything that we need on this planet. And everything acts is is interconnected. We're like a cohesive unit that has somehow materialized, and we've got all these amazing, fascinating creatures and plants, flora and fauna, and pure water and air to breathe. And somehow we've all um, come to being and been able to survive on this planet for many, many years. Everything has, has, you know, I mean, the Earth has sustained itself for many, many years. And as humans, we have the intelligence um, to be able to take care of our planet. But oftentimes, greed will step in um, and alter our thoughts and, and change how we take care of our planet. And from what I'm personally seeing over the last 50 years that I've been here, we're changing it to a point where we could, it could actually slip from our grip. We could lose what we've got, our home. This is the only home that we have. So in the book, what I tried to do was also bring up points that are are serious. You know, we, we need to think about 
keeping our air clean, keeping our oceans clean, um, keeping life here. If we lose our oceans, to me, we've lost everything. That's possibly where life came from in the first place. And the creatures who live in the ocean have been there for millions of years. You know, and, and it's so important for humans to take our planet seriously, take good care of our home. It's not only our home, it's all the flora and fauna on the planet. It's their home too. So in Sparky, I tried to talk a little bit about that, that fact. We have time for just a couple more questions. We have about a, a minute left. Uh, what age group would you say this is focused on, the, your book, the reader? How old? Um, it's, it's been classified between 9 and 12 years old. To, to be, it's, it's a novel, so um, you know, it's for the kids to be able to understand and comprehend everything that I'm trying to say in the book. Uh, that's that's the readership that it's uh, geared towards. However, I believe that the stories, um, even younger kids, I've had six and seven year olds read the book, and I mean they're my hardest critics. <laughs> kids are honest; they they call the spade a spade, and the younger ones enjoy the book just as much as the nine to twelve year olds, just as much as the parents are enjoying it as well. So I'm very pleased because that's how I try to write it was so that even anybody from the very, very young to elderly folks could get a lot of information out of the book. It's a very educational book, but it's also fun. There's, there's critters running around and, and terrorizing each other in a fun way and, and all the information about Sparky learning and, and growing and like Sparky sliding through mud, mud flats and, getting dirty and, you know, just having a fun, just like a, a kid might do. Um, I tried to gear the whole book towards everybody enjoying it. Wendy, tell us how to get your book. Um, you can order it through iUniverse, which are wonderful folks. Uh, you can also get it on Amazon.com. Barnes & Noble carries the book. Um, chapters can order it through chapters there's any any bookstore uh can order sparky in so your local bookstores just contact them and they or on the internet you know you, you can either go into a bookstore or you can uh, go on the internet and order the book well sparky sounds like a lot of fun we thank you wendy for being with us on iUniverse radio and i thank you steve it's been, it's been wonderful that was Wendy Shymansky. She is the author of her book, Sparky, the world's most lovable and mischievous bear cub. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.